Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. Jesus goes on and says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or for by Jerusalem, uh, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, let what you say be simply yes and no. Anything more than that comes from evil. All right? That's what we're going to be covering tonight. Now, just like last time when we did our study on divorce, the background of what was going on in that day will be very, very helpful for us. Lying to one another, especially in business practices in that day, was extremely common. As you're about to see, and I'm going to do this for a reason, I'm going to show you a bunch of scriptures in the Old Testament, in the law, and the Proverbs that were pr very specific about the seriousness about being fair and honest in all your business practices that the scriptures talks about. It's almost going to get comical in a little bit here how the Bible repeated itself over and over in this one area. But you remember the old picture of the, the, the um, Norman Rockwell painting about the butcher? And he's weighing the meat and putting his thumb on the, on, the, on the scale. And, well, they would do similar things where they would weigh things out, but their, their measures and their weights were not fair. They were not equal. <clears throat> this will set the stage for where we're going to go tonight. Just turn with me to Proverbs chapter 20. And we'll start in verse 10. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 10. It says, unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike, an abomination to the Lord. Look over at verse 23 in the same chapter. Unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord, and false scales are not good. Jump back to Proverbs chapter 11 and look at verse 1. In Proverbs 11, verse 1, the scripture says, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Isn't it interesting how they keep saying the same thing over and over here in Proverbs? We'll go back to Leviticus chapter 19. Look at verses 35 through 37. In Leviticus 19, verse 35, the law said, You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. Isn't that interesting that in the law of God, he said, oh, by the way, when you have your measurements for business, they should all be equal and fair? It's interesting they had to put that in the law. Go to Deuteronomy 25. Look at verses 13 through 16. Deuteronomy 25, verses 13 through 16. You shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small. A full and fair weight you shall have, a full and fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly, are an abomination to the Lord your God. Isn't that interesting how... Many times this is being mentioned. 
We're not done. Go to Ezekiel chapter 45. Ezekiel chapter 45, listen to verses 10 through 12. In Ezekiel 45, verse 10, you shall have just balances, a just ephah, and a just bath. The ephah and the bath shall be of the same measure. The bath containing one-tenth of an omer, and the ephah one-tenth of an omer. The omer shall be the standard measure. The shekels shall be 20 geras. 20 shekels plus 25 shekels plus 15 shekels shall be your mina. Go to Amos chapter 8. In Amos chapter 8, look at verses 4 through 6. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over, and that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> We'll even sell the chaff mixed in with the wheat so we get more for less. Has anybody caught it yet? This was a real problem for the nation of Israel. But I'm not done. Go to uh, Micah chapter 6. In Micah chapter 6, look at verses 9 through 12. Micah chapter 6, verse 9, it says, The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it, it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. There was a real, real problem back in that day because of the wickedness of man, and the nation of Israel was doing it just as much as the nations around them, that they were actually cheating people in their business practices to make extra money. Years ago, when I was in seminary in New Orleans, I was hired by a man uh, who used to be a seminary student, but while he was in seminary, he started this business to make a little extra money where he would do remodeling uh, of houses, read shingle or hang sheetrock or painting or whatever. And he actually started to make so much money in this business, he dropped out of seminary and just went to work doing this business. And he would hire seminary students and he would put us to work. And his advertisement in the local papers and around was simply this, put a seminary student to work. Have our company come and put your roof on or our company come and hang your sheetrock or our company come and paint your house and you'll be putting a seminary student to work and you'll have seminary students working on your house and we'll do a great job. Well, I went to work for him because I needed money and I could paint. And so I went to work for this man. And then after a few weeks, he decided that he goes, you know what? You're really good with people. Well, I'm going to make you a salesman. I'm going to send you out and to go and to sell some of these jobs. And we'll get the referrals and we'll send you out to go talk to them. And, and one of the things that we were told to do as salesmen was to tell people that if we are hired, if you hired our company to reshingle your roof, we would give you free blown in insulation. If, you, if we were allowed to shingle your roof. Well, I for three weeks was a salesman for this company on straight commission and sold nothing. He called me into his office and he said, what's going on? I said, they're not buying the stuff. He goes, are you telling them that we'll give them free blown in insulation so many inches thick if they'll let us shingle their roof? 
I said, no. He goes, I told you to tell him that. I said, I know you told me to tell him that, but I also know you taught me how to calculate it into the price. I can't lie to the people. So he puts me in his big Lincoln Continental, and he takes me around driving, and he says, Jim, do you see this nice big car I have? I said, yeah. He goes, I have this nice car because I've, had, I've learned how to separate my Christianity from my business. This was so rampant in the day that Jesus was there that everybody knew they were being cheated. Everybody knew they were being cheated. And so they would ask the businessmen that they were buying their wheat from or selling their wheat to, they would ask them, are your scales accurate? Are your measures correct? And the people would say yes. And they'd say, swear that it's true. And the people would say, I swear by heaven. Or I swear by earth. Or I swear by Jerusalem that it's true. Or I swear by my own head this is, this is accurate here. But they would never, they would never swear by God himself because they knew the law of God said you never swear by God unless you're going to keep it. You never say I swear by God unless it was the truth. So they had found these little loopholes. They would swear by heaven or by earth, or by Jerusalem. Go with me to Leviticus chapter 19. Let me show you that passage that they were making sure that they didn't break. In Leviticus 19, look at verse 12. God says, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your, of your God, I am the Lord. So to avoid swearing by God when they knew they were going to lie, they would swear by heaven or Jerusalem or his earth or that kind of a thing. So Jesus now comes on the scene and he says, by the way, uh, let me help you out here. If you go back to Matthew, you'll see what he says. He says, uh, if you swear by heaven, you're still including God. You think you're avoiding including God by not saying God. But heaven, but when you say, I swear by heaven, you're still bringing God into the, 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 the oath because heaven is where his throne is. And when you say, I swear by earth, you're still bringing God into the oath because the earth is his footstool. And when you swear by Jerusalem, you're still including God and you're not escaping the law. You're still bringing God into it because it's the city of the great king. Does anybody know who the great king is? No, it's not David. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's the city of the great king. It's Jesus himself. Who is what? Who is who? God. That's where Jesus is going to rule and reign from. And then he says, well, by the way, um, don't even swear by your head. Because when you swear by your own head, you're still bringing God into it. Because, as I'm about to show you from two passages of scripture, God's in control of that too and you're not. What does he say? You can't even make one of your hairs white or black. Unless... Your name's Miss Clairol. But uh, look, go to Matthew chapter 6. Look at what he says here. He starts to give us an idea of how much control we really have. In Matthew chapter 6, look at verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Go with me to Acts chapter 17. Paul speaking to the Areopagus on Mars Hill. He's describing 
the true God to them. In verse 24, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Don't miss this. He's already determined when you'd be born and when you're going to die. That's in his control. Now it goes on and he says he did this so that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Folks, let me ask you this question. When you say, I swear by my own head, are you keeping God out of it or are you bringing God into it? You're bringing God into it. Actually, you're in any kind of an oath, if you claim to be a child of God, you're bringing God into it. And so what he was saying to them is, you guys think you're okay because you haven't broken Leviticus 19 because you, you lied, but you swore by not God himself. You did. You brought God into it. But not only were they including God when they made their false vows, but by including God in the vows, they were also making their vows to God. And that, that broke the law as well. Go to Numbers chapter 30. Again, remember what Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount? He's taking the law that they thought that they had found ways to keep without keeping it, but they thought they were keeping it, and he's taking them to the deeper issues and the heart of the issues and showing them that they're lawbreakers. Now he's showing them, look, not only did when you swore by heaven, you still include God and you swore by God. Now that since I just said you swore by God, you made your vow to God. Look at Numbers chapter 30, verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, saying, This is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 23. Look at verses 21 and 22. In Deuteronomy 23, look at verses 21 and 22. If you make a vow to the Lord, your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord, your God, will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what is past your lips. For you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. So Jesus says, by the way, you think you're okay by swearing by Jerusalem or heaven or the earth, but you've actually included God because that's tied to God. And oh, by the way, let me take you deeper. Because you've included God in these vows that you thought weren't including God, because you have included him, you made your vows to him. And so not only have you broken Leviticus 19, 12, You've broken Numbers 31 and 2 and Deuteronomy 23, 21 and 22. <clears throat> now, what I want to do real quick is deal with something that people have taken this passage and tried to make it say that it does not say. You've heard me say it before. I'm going to hopefully be used to God to burn it into your brains. Do not build your doctrine on one verse. 
Do not build how you live your life on one passage of Scripture. How many times over the years have people said, well, the Bible says, and they quote one verse, but they take it totally out of context and totally out of its meaning because that one interpretation of that one verse doesn't match with the whole of Scripture. This passage we're in tonight is another one of those places. Have you ever heard anybody say, well, I can't when I stand before the judge and they tell me to swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to help me, God? I can't do that because Jesus said I'm not to ever take an oath. You ever heard people talk like that? All the time. Well, I'm going to show you from Scripture that that's not what the Bible's saying. It's okay, by the way, according to the Scriptures, if you're in a courtroom, to swear by God that you'll tell the truth. Oh, by the way, you better tell the truth. <laughs> but this passage is not saying you can't ever do that. When Je but Jesus said, do not take an oath at all. So therefore, I would be, I'd be wrong to do it. Oh, let the whole of Scripture show you what the Scripture is actually saying here. And I'm going to explain what he was saying in a second. But let me just tell you, first of all, the Bible teaches that taking an oath is okay. Actually, there are places where it's commanded that we take an oath. Go to Numbers chapter 5. <clears throat> in Numbers chapter 5, as you're turning there, let me just kind of set the stage. We're going to look at verses 19 through 21. In this passage, in this section of the law here, this was set up for the situations when the husband thought his wife had been sexually unfaithful, but he hadn't caught her in the act. And he couldn't prove it, but he was really kind of sure that she hadn't been faithful, and he was really jealous. And so this is what it says in verse 19. Then the priest shall make her take an oath. Look at that. The law says she was to take an oath saying, if no man has lain with you, and if you have not turned aside to uncleanness while you were under your husband's authority, be free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse. Now, by the way, to catch you up with, if you read the whole section, there was this concoction that they were to make according to the law that the woman was going to take an oath. I haven't been unfaithful to my husband. I swear to God that I haven't been faithful to my husband. And to prove it, I'll drink this concoction. And if she kept her vow, and it was true, and she was telling the truth, she drank it, nothing would happen to her. If for some reason, and God knows that she was lying, and she took it, it was going to make her amazingly sick. So she'll be free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse. But, verse 20, if you have gone astray, though you are under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself, and some other man has lain, other than your husband has lain with you, then let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse, and say to the woman, the Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people when the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell. So does the Bible command here in this instance that there's times when they're to take an oath? Yes. Oh, but there's a whole lot more than that. Go to Hebrews chapter 6. <clears throat> Did you know that God himself swore an oath to Abraham? Hebrews chapter 6. Look at verses 13 through 18. It says, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. By the way, the Hebrew writer would have never wrote that 
if Jesus had said that you would never ever take an oath. That's not what he was saying. I'm going to explain to you in a second what he was saying. But an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So God himself swore an oath to Abraham. Oh, go to um, Acts chapter 2. You'll see that God not only swore an oath to Abraham, he swore an oath to David. Acts chapter 2, verses 29 through 31. Peter preaching at Pentecost says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So here again, we see God swore an oath to David. So if it's against the law to ever swear an oath, how come God's done it twice? How come the law commanded it to be done? Oh, and by the way, did you know that Jesus in his trial swore under oath? Go with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. Verses 63 through 68. Jesus is in his trial right before the cross. Verse 63, but Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Some people say, Well, he didn't swear under oath. He didn't say, Yes, I am. He kind of he, he skipped around it. No, Jesus wasn't skipping around it here when he said, You have said so. And oh, by the way, you're going to see me standing at the right hand of God. He was saying, I am the Christ. Because Jesus himself talking to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, she said, The, the scripture says, and our teachers say that the sky, the Messiah is coming, the Christ is coming. And Jesus told her, I who speak to you am he. So Jesus never denied that he was the Christ. And under oath, sworn to tell the truth by the living God, Jesus said, you said it. But, it wasn't even, but in saying you said it, they knew full well what he said. And then he made it even more clear. And what was their reaction? He just said he was the Christ. He's blasphemed. And then they started hitting him and spitting on him and saying, tell us Christ. So Jesus, who in Matthew 5 said, do not take an oath at all either by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem or by your own head, this same Jesus swore under oath. So folks, let me just tell you, scripturally, the Bible doesn't say that if you are to take an oath of office or you're in a court that you're never to take an oath because Jesus said, I can't take an oath. No, that's not what it's saying. But when he said, don't take an oath at all, he was talking to a people that couldn't handle it because when they did, they blew it. Now, let me clarify it for you in a way that might be kind of fun or, and help you grasp it. 
Years ago, when my 25-year-old daughter, Nicole, was uh, little and in elementary school, I think she's like fifth or sixth grade, she came home one day in tears. Might even have been fourth grade. I lost track. You know, you look back, I don't remember what year was what anymore, but she came home from elementary school in tears. We're like, what's the matter, honey? She said, well, today in, in music class, our teacher taught us this song. And in the song, we say, a tootie-ta, a tootie-ta, a tootie-ta, ta, and we have to shake our right arm or our left arm, and then eventually we have to shake our leg. And by the end of the song, we have to turn around on the bleachers and shake our butts. But I know I'm not allowed to shake my, actually, back then she said behind. I have to shake our behinds. Uh, and I know I'm not supposed to shake my behind. And we, we calmed her down and said, it's okay, honey, it's all right. Well, then, many years later, we're sitting at the dinner table, and um, when we eat dinner as a family, a lot of times on the computer screen, which is nearby, we'll have uh, the screensavers, a bunch of all the pictures of over the years. And there came up a picture of her in the, the, the children's uh, music choir there at her elementary school singing that song where they're shaking different parts of their body. And she goes, I remember that song. I remember coming home from school crying because they told me that I had to shake my butt and I was afraid you wouldn't let me shake my butt. I said, it's interesting. Also, when you were little, you weren't allowed to say butt. How come you're saying butt now? She goes, that's right. How come I'm, oh, it's okay for me to say butt now? And I said, listen, here's why. When you were little, you never knew the appropriate time to use the word butt and not use the word butt. And so we made a rule that said, don't ever use the word butt. And when you were little, you didn't know the appropriate time to shake your butt and not to shake your butt. And so we said, don't be shaking your butt. But as you mature, you understand how to be led of the spirit and when it's appropriate and when it's not. Some of you are saying, Jim, I don't think you know the appropriate time to use the word butt. But here's the deal. Jesus is talking to a people that don't know how to control this. They don't know how to obey the law and they don't know the heart of the issue. And he says, don't make an oath at all, guys. You don't even. Well, as you're about to see, he's about to say to him also, um, the fact that you think you even have to make an oath shows where your heart really is. Because as we're about to get to in a little bit, your yes needs to be yes and your no needs to be no. And that should be enough. So is it against God's word to take an oath if you're in a courtroom? No. That's the danger of building your doctrine from one verse instead of the whole of Scripture. But when you do take an oath in court, or an oath of office. You better keep your promises and tell the truth. You know why? Because especially for us Christians, when we take an oath as a child of God and we don't keep our promises, we use God's name in vain. By the way, that's what the passage really means. For years we've been told that when you use God's name as a cuss word, that that's using God's name in vain. Nope. Go back to Leviticus chapter 19 again. Look again at verse 12. Leviticus 19. Look at verse 12. You shall not swear by my name falsely and then profane, and so profane the name of your God. I'm the Lord. In other words, he's not saying you shouldn't swear by him. He says when you do, remember the other passages? It said when you do swear by me, keep it. If you make a vow to me, do it. If you swear by my name and don't keep what you swore you'd do, you're profaning my name. 
A lot of times when we send our kids out to school or out in the work field, we'd always say to them as they left the house, act like a relative. That was the cute way we had come up with to say, when you leave this house, you represent the Johnson clan. Act like a Johnson. Act like a Johnson. Because when you don't act like a Johnson, you bring shame to us. You know who you are. Act like a relative. I could take you, if you wanted to, to the section. Go to Exodus 20. Look at verse 7. The passage that actually talks about not using God's name in vain. Look at what it says. Exodus 20, verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. If you look at the whole of scripture, you'll see that taking God's name in vain is saying that you represent God and you don't do like God would have you do. We're about to get to that at the end of our time tonight. We're going to spend a long time at the end in James chapter 3 and chapter 4. But in James chapter 3, it starts off with, those of you, should, you shouldn't seek to be teachers. You shouldn't all seek to be teachers. Because those of us who stand here and say, thus says the Lord, the Bible says we'll be held in stricter accountability. Folks, I, I can't stress this to you enough. I've had people over the years come up to me afterwards and say, I don't agree with your interpretation. I don't, I don't agree with how you have taught this tonight. And I look at them and I say, you're very welcome to disagree with me. But please don't think for a second that I'm teaching something that I've taken lightly. When I stand here and say, this is what God's word said, and I show you from Genesis to Revelation, it's because I do take it serious. Because I know one day, whatever I say, this is what God's word means, and this is what God's word says, I will be held accountable for it. Because in a sense... I'm vowing before God and to the Lord every single time I preach and teach. Anybody else want that job? Oh, by the way, and not only that, <laughs> mine's recorded. <laughs> Twice. So what does Jesus mean then when he says, do not take an oath at all? What he's saying is, exactly, we should never need to take an oath or swear an oath to get someone to believe us if our yes always means yes and our no always means no. If you're such an honest person that if you say it and everybody knows if this person says it, they're going to do it. And if they say no, they mean no. If you are known as such a person, you don't need to say Scout's Honor or I swear by my mom. You don't need to make any kind of an oath to make people believe you if you're a person that every time you say what you're going to, you do what you say you're going to do. If we're known as honest and trustworthy because we always do what we say and mean what we say, we should never need to add any type of an oath on our own to get people to believe us. Go to James chapter 5. Look at verse 12. It's going to sound familiar, by the way. In James chapter 5, verse 12, James says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear, 
either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Anything more than your yes and your no that you initiate, did, by the way, did you catch the difference there? If you're asked to swear under oath, do it. Just do what you say. If you're asked to take an oath of office, it's okay. Just keep your promises of the oath of office. But there should never be a time that you need to meet the one, be the one initiating the oath. You understand the difference? So when Jesus says, don't take an oath at all, he's not saying, if you're charged to take an oath, don't ever do it because you have to break in the law. No, he's saying you should never be the one who ever has to initiate the oath. Do you catch it now? Because anything beyond your yes or your no comes from evil. The only reason you would need it is because of evil. Because you've been a person that haven't been believable. Let me talk to you parents tonight real quick, and maybe you're just maybe you're past that point in your grandparents. But as parents, you'll be a much better parent if you, if you do everything you say you'll do. Oh, and that'll keep you from saying you're going to do stuff without meaning it. Let me give you an example. Years ago, I was sitting in a Taco Bell restaurant having another fine meal with my wife. And uh, um, we were sitting there, and there was this family nearby, and one of their kids had gotten loose from them and was over by the registers where they have those bars that you have to walk through to get your food, and the kid was just swinging on them. And the parent yelled from across the restaurant, get back over here. Kid kept swinging, yelled again, get back over here, and the kid kept swinging. Finally, the parent yelled across the Taco Bell, if you don't get over here right now, I'm going to come over there, rip your arm off, and beat you with it. The kid kept swinging. You know why? You knew that they weren't going to do it. Oh, no, by the way, the parents never got up. That kid had learned mom and dad don't mean it when they say it. How many of you raised your kids that when you told them to do something, if they didn't do it, you counted to one, two, and then they start moving at three? Actually, we did it different. We told our kids something, and if we had to count, one meant one spanking. Two meant you're getting two spankings. Three meant you better pack your bags. Because we didn't want our kids to think that we meant it when we got to three. We meant it when we said it the first time. It's for their own good. You're to honor your father and mother that you may live long in the land. It's one of the first commandments with promise. Because when our kid is running across the street and the truck is coming, we don't have time to get to three. We want them to know we said stop and we meant stop when we said it the first time. But how many of us, without realizing it, our yes hasn't been yes and our no hasn't been no because we didn't mean it till we got to three with our kid. Oh, by the way, it, many of us sitting here goes, I'm not really in business. I haven't cheated anybody. I don't have unjust measures. I'm just going to tell you lovingly, uh, we're about to all get hit right between the eyes when it comes to this say what you mean and mean what you say thing. Needing anything more than your word comes from evil. Either you're trying to deceive or you've lied so much you're not believable anymore with a yes or no. Sadly, even preachers are known for exaggeration. We puff up the numbers in order to make ourselves look better. 
Once again, Jesus is trying to get to the heart of men. Have you ever heard the term or when the preacher says something and how many people were there? Has you ever heard anybody say, are you ministerially speaking? Isn't that sad that preachers are known for not telling the truth when it comes to numbers? It's almost expected. As I train pastors around the country, one of the things that when I meet with them, I say to them is this. If you say you're going to be somewhere at 7 o'clock, you be there at 7 o'clock. Because preachers are famous for trying to appear busy and showing up late and, oh, I've been so busy, but I'm 15 minutes late or whatever. Have you ever noticed the Bible studies on Tuesdays and Wednesday nights? We start at 7 and we finish at 8. Because I want you to believe me when I say to you whatever God has me to say to you. I want you to believe that Jim, when he says it, he means it. If I say, I mean it this time, what did I just say? I didn't tell the truth prior. It's time for us to see how well we do. Um, Have you ever said when someone calls you and wakes you up and they say, I'm sorry, did I wake you? And you said, no, you didn't wake me when they woke you. And don't try the the phone woke me. That's still deceitful. This is how my house always looks when you have cleaned. You knew company was coming over and you clean furiously. And they walk in the house and they say, what a beautiful place you have. And you say, this messy place? And you act like this is how it always is. By the way, remember, God knows our hearts. Yes, professor, I did all the required reading. I heard a joke years ago when I was in seminary, and this professor was talking about how uh, this guy dies and he goes to heaven, and as he's going into the uh, gates of heaven, he sees all these people furiously reading stacks and stacks of books outside the gates. And he gets inside and he says, what was that all about? And he said, oh, those are all the seminary students having to read all the books they said they read before they can get into heaven. Years ago, when I was in school, I got to be honest with you, I was never really good at obeying the, you have this reading every night. Because there was so much, I, I, could, I don't know how anybody could do it. Plus, I'm one of these ones that have been gifted by God that if I hear it, I've got it. And I could sit in class drawing cars and listen. And I knew I had it. And on top of that, I also knew how to interpret people. And I knew what the professor was looking for and what he wasn't looking for. And so I was one of the ones who never did the reading. I was in an ethics class one day in seminary. It was a whole course on ethics. And every night there was required reading. And every day there was a pop quiz on the previous night's required reading. But not everybody got the pop quiz. You didn't know if you were going to get the pop quiz that day or whether or not someone else was going to get it. How the professor did it was we were in rows. He would actually pick, say there's 30 kids in the class Maybe 12 or 15 people were going to get the pop quiz that day, and the others didn't have to have the pop quiz. You just never knew what day you were going to get the pop quiz. And so he would hand the pop quizzes out at the beginning of the class, and you had to take it through the course because they were just true-false questions. And you would get the stack of papers, and you'd look for your name. And when your name wasn't in it, you'd go, and you'd hand it to the person behind you. And one day, my name's in the pile, and I hadn't done the required reading. But it was 10 true-false questions. And I knew them all. And I got them all right. Get to the 10th question. The 10th question was this. 
Yes, I did the required reading. Well, it's an ethics class. I decided to be ethical, and I put false. When the quiz came back, I got a zero. I said to the professor, I got one through nine correct. He said, yes, you did. And I said, and in an ethics class, I was ethical, and I could have lied and been unethical, put true you would have never known, and I would have got 100. But I was ethical, and you gave me a zero. He said, you should have done the reading. It's not like it bothers me still 30 years later. So I'm just, <laughs> but. We have a tendency at times to make ourselves look better to not be fully honest. Jesus is trying to get to our hearts. So what I want to do in the time we have left tonight, go with me to James chapter 3. I'm going to read to you all the way through chapter 3 and chapter 4. We're going to put them all together. I'm going to keep reading them all the way through. Because you have to keep in mind, when James wrote this, he didn't stop, put a big 3 or a 4 down. He was writing in continual thought here. And watch how this all ties together. And by the way, you're about to see he's writing to believers. It's very clear that he's writing to believers. In James chapter 3, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. Did you catch that? I'm not beating you up when I point out all these ways that you've been lying and I've been lying. We all stumble in many ways. And if anyone doesn't stumble in what they say, they're perfect. By the way, before the Bible study started, you'll get a kick out of this, Chris. I was talking to uh, Tim, and he already knew where we were going to be. And he said to me, so we're talking about vows today. I said, yeah, we're going to be talking about lying too. Are you nervous? He goes, everybody should be. <laughs> wisdom, man. That's wisdom. But we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they're so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, stand, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of, re and of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. Don't jump over that too quick. Listen again. No human being can tame their tongue. How many times have you said, I'm going to bite my tongue? Yeah, but that ain't going to stop it. It's not going to stop it. It's not possible for you to control your tongue. Because you're going to see as we close in just a little bit in Luke 6, we, the mouth speaks what's in the heart. And the only way you control the tongue is to allow Jesus to have the change of your heart and allow him to have control. And when he has control, God is the one who can tame the tongue. You can't. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. 
With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse, curse people who are made in the likeness of God. By the way, when it says we curse people, it doesn't mean we use curse words. It means we talk bad about them, we gossip about them, we slander them. Man, have you ever taken the time to look at how many passages in the New Testament deal with how we treat each other? It's mind-blowing. Just as much as we saw have just balances and equal weights in the Old Testament, I could show you more than that in the New Testament, how one of the biggest issues was envy, deceit, slander, strife amongst the body of believers. He goes on and he says, From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who's wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast or be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And the way you could put that is honest. And the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you murder. Well, how are they murdering? Yeah. Remember, remember, remember the, the love, anger. The anger and the slander and the... Uh, remember what Jesus already said in our Sermon on the Mount? You murder. You covet and you can't obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. By the way, let me just point out real quick. One of the reasons we covet other people's stuff and covet things other people that God's blessed them with is because deep down, we really don't think God will do it for us. When we actually are coveting other people's things or what God has blessed them with in their marriage or their house or their car or their family or whatever, when we're coveting what God has done in other people's lives, we're really saying God is not good and he wouldn't do that for me. We're making a judgment about God. And he says to us, you don't have because you don't ask. Oh, and when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, here's where it moves into awesome. But he gives more grace, folks. He's not mad. He's already poured all of his wrath for your sin on his son. He's not angry at you. He doesn't hate you. He loves you. He grieves because he wants to bless. He's a good God. He wants you to ask and have your passions and your heart be right so that he can bless you with things. He wants to do this in your life. And he gives more grace. So... Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. 
Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And all of a sudden I hear in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who are spiritually poor. Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. It doesn't say might. It doesn't say he'll think about it. He will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now. You who say today or tomorrow will go into such and such a town and, and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What's your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it's sin. Years ago, when I was pastor at First Baptist in the Atlantic, uh, I would preach through books of the Bible, but I would have a theme that we would be pulling out from that study of that book. And when I taught through the book of James, the theme for that book study was, what's in your bucket? And I started the sermon series by holding a five-gallon paint bucket. And I held it up so the people in the balcony couldn't see in. But I asked everybody, what's in this bucket? And of course, their answer was, we don't know because we can't see. And I told them there are three ways you can find out what's in this bucket. The first way is we could just dump it out and see what's in it. Another way is um, you can get high enough and peek in there and see what's. But there's a third way that you can find out what's in this bucket. Hit it hard. Give it a good knock and what's in it will splash out. I'm going to ask you a question. What's in your bucket? When you get hit by the world, or God allows it, or by your spouse, or your kids, what splashes out? What comes out of your mouth? When things catch you by surprise, is your first action and reaction to a little fib to make yourself look better and protect yourself? Is your first reaction to lies? Your first reaction to, to be angry? Well, maybe I shouldn't ask you what's in your bucket. Maybe I should ask your spouse. Ladies, what's in your husband's bucket? You know. You've seen it come out. Guys, what's in your wife's bucket? Parents, you know what's in your kid's bucket. Maybe I should ask the kids, what's in your parents' bucket? Wouldn't that scare all of us if someone asked our kids, what's your parents like really at home? Years ago, when I was pastor of the church in Chicago, um, Nicole at this time again, she was about five years old, maybe a little less, and we were driving somewhere to dinner with her Sunday school teacher, which was a single lady named Cindy, and she was a neat lady, and Cindy was single, and so we kind of included her in a lot of family stuff. And one day, we were driving in the car to this restaurant, and we're in a minivan, and Nicole's in her car seat behind me and Becky and Cindy's in, in the back there with her and 
me, I'm always teasing and joking, and I did something to tease Becky, and she, like she always does, she punched me in the arm, you know, as I'm driving. And Nicole turns to her Sunday school teacher and says, Miss Cindy, sometimes my dad hits my mom. <laughs> and she goes, that's something we Sunday school teachers love to hear. And I was like, no, it's, it's only this way. You know, we had to like, like make sure that he didn't think I was abusive. Let's close tonight with Luke chapter 6. Look at verses 43 through 45. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit, for figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Now, some of you are saying, Jim, why would you close with this? You just said that we've all got bad stuff in our bucket, and you've convicted us, and you, or hopefully the Holy Spirit's been the one to convict you, but we've been convicted that there are some things in our bucket that need, ought not be so, and we need the Lord to do a work. But you now just said that when the evil comes out, I'm an evil person. Oh, keep in mind, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, but we still sin. And Paul in Romans 7 said, the things I want to do, I don't. The things I don't want to do, I do. Listen closely to what he says. He says, when I sin, it's no longer I who do it, but sin living in me. And when we talk about what's in your bucket, what I want you to understand is, is you still have that residual, if you will, from the flesh. But it's not who you are anymore. And when you realize that came out and it should not have come out. Encourage yourself with the fact that if you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. And that's not who I actually am. But I sure would like to see that get less and less. Jesus, no man can tame the tongue. No human being can claim the, tame the tongue. Do a work in my heart because out of the abundance of my heart, my mouth is going to speak. You've given me a new heart. May the world see it. Do your work. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.